Psalms is really easy to find. So if you go hit Psalms, go right, you'll eventually land in Ecclesiastes. That's the first thing. The second thing is, um, is that as you entered today, you were supposed to have received a little piece of chocolate. If you haven't, it's because the leadership here has deemed you unworthy of it. There will be an altar call later for those of you that haven't. But if seriously, if you haven't, everybody is supposed to have one. Um, just slip your hand in the air and we have ushers ready to kind of drop that off right at your door. Um, some of you have already eaten it. This sermon is about delayed gratification and you've already failed. Um, no, this, this, this is going to be a cool moment that we're going to share together. Some of us now, um, I know some of us are fasting as well and we'll get there and I'm sorry for those of you that are. I really am. But you can uh, rejoice with those who rejoice this morning. Um, so make sure that you have a piece of chocolate that's going to be in a very cool moment that we're going to share together uh, much later. Uh, a couple things. This morning, um, because we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, I just want to kind of set us up with this idea that what I'm going to talk about is a little heavy this morning. It's um, At least for the first few moments after we read the text, it's going to be a little uh, morbid, if you will. Um, and I, so I ask that you would go ahead and prepare your hearts for that idea, that you would kind of go ahead and open your ears and minds to understand, hey, this may be a little heavy for the first few moments, and if that's the case, well, um, it's okay. It's in the Bible, and if it's in the Word of God, then we can trust it. So we're going to be there this morning. And the second thing is, is that um, I'm excited about this message um, because of how meaningful it is for me at this point in my life. Um, this is kind of the capstone, uh, a means of me reflecting upon some very significant moments that have been happening in my family over the past couple of weeks. For those of you that don't know, uh, last Saturday, a week ago yesterday, my sister got married, which was awesome. Um, she had a beautiful wedding. Everything was exactly how she wanted it. I'm not a big fan of weddings. Um, it's kind of like five hours on a Saturday of small talk. It's exhausting to be at a wedding. Um, it's not my ideal scenario, um, but it was awesome for her. She enjoyed it, and so that was beautiful. But immediately before her wedding, the Monday before, uh, my mom got a call from the assisted living facility where my grandfather was staying. He'd been battling Alzheimer's for a while and basically said, look, he's slipping into that transition state between life and death, and if you have goodbyes, come and say them. And so for, the, for that entire week, my family and I were kind of spending time, especially my parents, just spending time with him. And then, um, ironically enough, in the middle of the ceremony after my grandmother had left to come be there, he passed away right as my dad was pronouncing uh, my sister and Caleb as husband and wife. So it's just really ironic a moment for my family of death and yet um, this beautiful wedding. And then six days from now, if you can't tell, for those of you who have seen my wife, we're going to be having a baby, right? So we're going to be having our second child. His name is Judah, and we're really excited about that. So in the, sp- in the span of, what, three weeks, two weeks, we will have experienced a birth, a death, and a new life, uh, and, and a, a birth, a death, and a wedding. Wow. So, so it's, it's a very interesting time for me, and this text has helped me to process that. And um, as Jeremy said, we're in the middle of a, a series entitled Words to Live By, um, which is a walk through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's called wisdom literature for a, for a reason. It talks a lot about wisdom, and um, wisdom most basically in the scriptures, it's the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew word is chokmah, which sounds really Hebrew-y, like, you want to try that with me? Chokmah. Yes, beautiful. So it, it, most basically, it's used to describe a talent or an ability. So it's people that are really good at things. If you think back to the text, for example, in Exodus 30, when, people, uh, when, when God calls Bezalel and Oholiab, two of your favorite Bible characters, I'm sure, to uh, build the tabernacle, tabernacle is a really detailed thing. It says that they're, they're men of chokhmah, they're men of skill or ability. They're really good at it. They have talents. Well, 
The wisdom literature picks up on that, and they say that uh, chokmah, then wisdom, then are those who uh, are people who are skilled at living. They are masters of life. They are senseis of the art of living. You can put that on your resume if you're a wise person, right? You can put that right there. It says here you're good at computer programming. It says here you're good at skills. And it says you're a master of life. Yes, I am a master of life. Right? You can put that there if you're wise. So that's, what, that's what this literature is trying to get us to become, masters of the art of living. And so Jeremy did an excellent job last week uh, walking us through a very um, uh, key passage in the book of Proverbs showing us that the wise life is one that trusts in God even when we don't understand how or where God is leading. And many of you are trusting God for significant things this year. So the, so the wisdom is, is that which trusts in God's leadership. But then when we get to Ecclesiastes, things change a little bit. Uh, things change a lot. So in the book of Proverbs, right, everything is so ordered. It all makes sense. If you do X, Y, and Z, then God blesses you. If you do X, Y, and Z, the opposite of that, well, then God, there's, there's bad things. Death happens. It's just not a good way to live. It's foolishness, right? Well, in Ecclesiastes, all of that's going to get turned on its head. Proverbs may say, if A, then B. And Ecclesiastes says, if A, then Z, or if A, then like detergent squirrels. It just says like whatever it wants to say. It's a really weird book, right? Um, And so I want us to, before we delve into the passage, to understand exactly what Ecclesiastes is and is about. So here's some features of the book. Um, Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word, ecclesiastes. Uh, there, it sounds just like it, right? Which has a root word, uh, ecclesia. So if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that the word for the church in the New Testament is ecclesia, those who have been called out. But more generally, it's a word for an assembly. So an ecclesiastes is a member of, a, of an assembly or one who calls together a group of people. It's from the Hebrew word kohelet, which is based on the word kahal, which also means assembly. And so most basically, we're talking about a leader, a speaker, or a preacher toward an assembly. So this isn't just some guy's kind of notebook that he doesn't want anybody to see. But the teacher here, who's likely Solomon, the teacher here is trying to get, is, is addressing his thoughts to a populace. He's trying to get us to follow him somewhere. So he's addressing us. He's preaching to us this morning. We're going to see exactly what he has to say to us. As I said, it's traditionally attributed to Solomon, which is important. The rabbis, they attempted to locate all of Solomon's works at various points in his life. So they looked, he wrote Song of Songs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Where could these go? So they said, Song of Songs, well, that was written when uh, Solomon was like a kid or like a youth, right? He's just passionately in love with one of his 700 wives, right? Just passionately in love, and he's just concentrating on how much he loves that person. Well, then we get Proverbs. He's a young man. He's grown up. He kind of understands that the, how the world works, and so he's written all of these uh, wonderful maxims to live by. But then we get Ecclesiastes. We get old man Solomon. We get senile, grumpy, like in a bad mood Solomon that's just no holds barred. I'm just going to be honest about the way that I see life. And so that's significant. If we can kind of see the posture behind the teacher as somebody that's kind of toward the latter end of life trying to get us to see its meaning. And then, most importantly, is that Ecclesiastes, the Solomon here, he's the skeptic par excellence. What I mean by that is he's just going to say, everything that is taken and given to me, I've seen different in the world. You're going to tell me that the wise live this way and things go well, the foolish live this way and things go poorly. Well, I've seen the opposite. I've seen the righteous die young and I've seen the wicked live long lives. What am I supposed to do with that? So we have a lot of skepticism here. In fact, the very the second verse of the whole book in the, in the, in the NIV is what? Meaningless meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Go forth and do likewise and go home. Like that, that's, that's the mantra of the book. But 
meaningless there is getting at a different word, though. It's not just, it's not a concept of meaninglessness. He's getting at a symbol. NIV is translating a symbol. The word is hevel. And the word hevel most basically means breath or mist. It means vapor. So he's saying that everything in the world is but a breath. It's but a mist. It's but a vapor. So meaninglessness maybe may be in there, right? That we can see we can't grasp it, we can't get a hold of it, so it's kind of meaningless. But at the same time, it may just signal that everything is but a breath. Everything is just for a moment. And if we can see life in that way, how does that change the way we live? Now, so where, we at, where we're at in Ecclesiastes 9 this morning, um, no matter how you feel about the a book of Ecclesiastes, it is Christian scripture. It is not just meant to be the foil for a life with Jesus, meaning, oh, thank God we're not like Solomon because we have Jesus. No, there's more to Ecclesiastes than that. And so as a group this morning, I want us to open our hearts to see God's self-disclosure to us in this book, to see how God is revealing a wise life, even in what might be morbid words in Ecclesiastes 9. So in light of that, I want to read our text together this morning. Ecclesiastes 9, 1. This is what he says. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. It's just getting more depressing. This <laughs> is like, oh, gosh. All right, so verse 7. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless, maybe better, transitory, uh, fleeting, all the days of this fleeting life. That's that heaven word that God has given you under the sun all your fleeting days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in, the, for in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Say amen. 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 All right, let's pray together. God, I ask that over these next few moments that you would anoint our, my lips and our ears to discern your voice in the midst of this difficult text and to find your life lurking in the midst of it. Um, we praise you, we give you honor, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, this is one of my favorite passages, believe it or not, in all of the Bible. And in order to kind of unpack it, I want to look at three kind of principles from it, three things that wise people do on the basis of the teacher's advice here. And the first is this. The wise understand that death is certain. The wise understand that death is certain. So, I want to do something, and this is where it's going to get a little heavy. It's going to get a little heavy, so just stay with me. I want to do something this morning. I want to address a fundamental lie that lies at the core of each person in this room. 
a fundamental false perception of reality that lies at the core of our subconscious that drives everything that we do, that enables us to go about our daily routine and go to the grocery store and go to the cleaners and go to work as if everything is completely normal. It's a lie that if I were to tell you the lie, you would immediately say, of course, I don't believe that. That's ridiculous. But, this, but nevertheless, we, we work, we operate with it at the core of our being. And that lie is this. You... Yes, you, not the person sitting next to you. You are not going to die. Now, I said it. And most of the people in the room are like, I get it. I know I'm going to die. I understand. No, but we don't believe it, though, do we? Do we honestly, do we honestly think that? Is that, is that operate in our consciousness ever, that there will come a moment, as terrifying as it sounds, when breath will enter our lungs and no longer leave it? When the heart that is beating deep within our chest so assuredly, so strongly, however long, however short that's been, will stop its daily rhythms. When the blood that is coursing through our veins will come to a screeching halt. Each of us will have to face that moment. And most of us don't, why think about that, right? That's an awkward conversation topic anyway. Why, why even go there? In fact, when I was, I've been so reflective when thinking about this message. And I was sitting at the food court with my wife and... We're enjoying lunch, and we're talking about nothing, like where we're going next to the store or whatever. And I immediately, out of nowhere, I just turned the conversation. I'm like, Amanda, what are some things you want to do before you die? And she goes, Justin, what's wrong with you? I'm not talking about that. Because she's a normal human person. We push off death to the recesses of our consciousness. Death is way out there. Those other pe- that, that happens to celebrities and our acquaintances and occasionally in tragic moments, those who are near us. But death, death is all the way out there. In fact, Aristotle defined it best. He said, luck is when the arrow hits the guy next to you. You know what I mean? That's how we think of the world. And in fact, you know those moments when... Um, there's a natural disaster, and they, you hear of like 300 people have died from some tornado in Oklahoma, for example. And they'll go to the wreckage, and they'll find a, you know, a survivor family, and they'll interview them and talk about them. And the survivor family will say things like, you know, we're just so grateful to be alive, which is so true. But then they'll say this, but God was just watching over us. And I'm thinking, dude, like what about the 300 other people? Now, I'm not saying God's not watching over you, but it's as if we think of ourselves as the exception to the death rule. Death, that happens over there to those people at those times. Not me. I'm the exception. I'm the invincible one. God takes care of me personally. But Kohelet, the teacher, is trying to wake us up to this reality. Have you noticed the way that we keep death far away with the terminology, right? That when someone has died, we don't say dead. That's a, that's a bad word. That's a four-letter word. What do we say? Passed away. He's passed on. He's with Jesus, which is true, which we're going to talk about. He's with Jesus, or he's fallen asleep, right? We don't want to say the, the four-letter, capital D, dead word. That's a harsh, hard word to hear. We, don't, we keep it far away from ourselves. Or think about the way that death is handled in our culture. So think, you know, in the 1800s in this country, death was a part of life. You were just constantly surrounded by it in so many ways. In fact, they, after a person had died, they would just kind of lay them out on the kitchen table. And there you'd be eating and there'd be a dead person right there next to you. You'd have to bury your own dead. And now we kind of punt death to all these officials and all these people in nice careers, right? We don't deal with the dead. It's, that's people in medicine. That's people in funeral homes. And that's people who are uh, ministers, right? They deal with death. We don't do, we, we keep that far, that's icky, we keep that far away from us. Or think of, think of Christianity, right? We, we've we've uh, talked about, we've dumbed death down to be almost nothing in Christianity. Now hear me, I, it is completely and totally truth this morning that those of us that are in Christ after we die are with Jesus. Amen, I believe that. But friends, death is not a good thing. We talk about it 
kind of like it is, right? Death can't be a good thing. If it's a good thing, then why do many of you own weapons, right? Because if somebody breaks into your home to harm you, you should thank them because they're doing you a favor, right? If death is a good thing, that's kind of the natural reaction to it. But it's not. It's something to be fought. Hear me, resurrection's only a solution if death is a problem, right? Resurrection is only a solution if death is a problem. So it's okay to feel fundamentally icky and bad about death, right? It's always around us in these weird ways. We deny it, but yet have you ever noticed how, like I said, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So think, life's happiest moments always have these death element to them. So maybe you're starting a new job and hopefully that job has benefits. If it does, one of those benefits is usually life insurance. There it is. In the moment of starting this beautiful new job, you're going to have to sign on to a policy that essentially says, my time here is heavily temporary. I'm going to die one day. That's terrifying, right? Or think my sister's wedding a couple weeks ago. My sister's naturally dramatic in her own way. But she's, she, she's sitting there with her um, saying these vows back and on these beautiful, filled with life. Right? There's flowers everywhere. There's candles representing love and so much happiness. And right there, smack dab in the middle of it, my sister is saying these beautiful, I, Ashton, take you, I mean, in her own dramatic way, Caleb, right? There it is. But, it, <laughs> but, it, but there we, we commit ourselves. Everybody knows my sister is making fun of her right now. Sorry, Ashton, if you hear this. But, um, but there it is in the middle of it, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, what? Till death do us part. There it is, right there, rearing his ugly head in the middle of a beautiful day, and all those songs about forever love, it's not true. There it is in the moment we realize we're signing onto something temporary, even if it's 70 years, there's death. Or the birth of a child. Oh, what greater joy, the kicking, screaming, bubbling, burping thing that is before us, right? This beautiful child. And yet the second you get home, what's one of the first things you have to do now that you have an heir? Sit down with a pen and paper and write out your will. Gosh, it's, it's everywhere. It's around. We sang it today. Do you notice the worship songs today? What's the, uh, one thing remains. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. So God's love is there in death, but yet death is nevertheless there. What, what's the second song? There, there it is. I want to be close, close to your side. Heaven is real and death is a lie. So poetic, so beautiful, but so not true. <laughs> death is real. It's something that we have to deal with. It's, it's, it's so true in some ways, but so, yeah, death is one of the only certainties of life. How terrifying that is, but yet how Wonderful it is that we have the knowledge of it, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But most beautifully, 10,000 reasons, right? On that day when my strength is failing, singing of our own deaths in the middle of this beautiful service together. And so what is the teacher trying to say about it? He's not just trying to say that we're going to die. He's trying to wake us up from that lie. Because the wise understand that death is certain. Wisdom, there's wisdom in that. And he's saying that all of us, no matter how righteous or unrighteous, no matter how wise or unwise, we're all on the same train together, at least with respect to this life, heading toward one thing. We're all terminally ill together. And yet, things change. And aren't you glad you came today? Gosh. All right, things change in verse 4, though. A little bit, though they really change in 7, but verse 4. So the second part of this, he says, anyone who was among the living has hope. Ah, bright, brightness, right? Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now to understand this, we have to understand that dogs back in the ancient world were not the cute sweater-wearing children that they are today, okay? There wasn't a multi-billion dollar industry to make sure that your dog had enough bones for Christmas, okay? So... Dogs were kind of like rats in the ancient world. They were, they were gross. They were uh, considered to be unclean and 
ferocious. They were considered to be associated with death and uh, the underworld. But lions, much like they are now, they're associated with royalty and power and life. And so he says, it doesn't matter. The lion, if he's dead, he's just a carcass. Even the lowly, despicable dog, because he's alive, is better off than he. What a cool thought. So what hope do the living have, according to the teacher? Verse 5, for the living know that they will die. (laughs) There's the advantage to living. You know you're going to die. How terrible. But the dead know nothing. Now we have to understand, in the ancient, in, in the Old Testament, these people had no concept of the afterlife. Most of the time, with the exception of books like Daniel and a couple others, the Hebrews didn't have a concept of the afterlife. So that comes with Jesus. And so, of course, now we believe after death there is time with Jesus. There is resurrection. But for him, he's assuming there is no knowledge among the dead. For the living know that they will die. What a morbid thought, but yet what a blessed thought. Now, I'm not naive. I know that there are several people in this room that struggle with sincere death anxiety, that for, there are those that push us off way to the corner, but there are those that death is constantly in our minds. And as a result, we are attempting to control our world to make sure that we can stay as far away from it as possible. For some of us, that means that we, we just wish we could get the entire family into a safe room in our home and just lock them up. For others of us, that means we're not going to allow ourselves to get too close because we think we're going to lose them. This is obsession with death, obsession with not knowing what's in the future. I recognize that and hear me. That is not God's will for you. To live in that kind of very bound way, that is not how God has intended for you to live, and that is not what the teacher is recommending here. He's not recommending some kind of morbid obsession. He's instead recommending a very passive acceptance of the fact that death is coming. And God wants to lead you to that healthy relationship with death. I promise you that he does. So I want to say that this morning. But this thought of death can be a beautiful, liberating reality. Here's why. Some of you, first of all, some of you are in terrible, difficult times right now. And death tells us that all of that is temporary. No matter what, it's temporary. No matter how long it seems that there is going to be an end to it. There's a promise of that. That is certain in this life, and that can be encouraging. But secondly, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thought, it's a beautiful knowledge to know that death is coming because of a, a, a certain idea that those of us in the room that feel like it's our job to make a name for ourselves... We are liberated from that anxious drivenness that causes us to overwork. Some of you in the room, you work way too hard. You feel like that if you were to stop working for just a moment, that the entire world would implode. Ernest Becker, who's a psychoanalyst, he he wrote a famous book called The Denial of Death, and he talks about each of us attempt to, many people attempt to uh, supersede their death by participating in what he calls infinitude projects. And infinitude projects are these cases in which we want to transcend our lives, even maybe not like, like a, at the level of the presidency, for example, a gaining power, but in these small ways, we want to transcend our lives by establishing a legacy, a family, or making a lot of money, or having a lot of achievements and accolades. And here we understand the teacher tells us, look, all of that, friends, is, has, is, may have its good merit in some ways, but ultimately it's meaningless. Because we're all, we're all finite creatures. So we are liberated to live in a way that we can let go of these obsessions with work and gaining and achievements because we know we're not the heroes of the story. See, what's so interesting is the ways in which it's almost as if we think that we, we're called to live these heroic lives, that my life is the exception to all these ordinary lives. I'm going to live the heroic one. I'm going to do these amazing things, right? As if when the kingdom of God comes, that it's going to be God and then like me sitting next to him as his sidekick, like, look at all these cool things I did, God. No, there's only one hero of the story, and there's only one whose glory lasts forever, and that's God. So we are liberated by the fact that we know we are going to die because we are put in our proper place and understand 
I can relax, and it's okay if this project's imperfect. It's okay if I don't go to work today because I want to spend time with my kids every once in a while. Hear me, every once in a while. It's okay if I take a week off to be with my family. My name is not rest on my achievements. My name is subsumed into the name of Jesus Christ, and that's the only name that lasts forever. I'm liberated to live a more holistic existence. Just so we understand that this is not just an Old Testament concept, James chapter 4, verse 13, what does he tell them? He says, now, you, now listen, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So we, we have these kind of in, invincibility things to us that we, we're attempting to transcend our lives as if we are in control of them. Friends, we can't even make it to the Zaxby's without the blessing of God. Every moment then is a gift. And we are liberated then to give up our idols of invincibility, our idols of, of this thought that we are in, in infinite, and instead relax in the fact that we are only called to lead meaningful lives. Hear me, hear me this morning. God has not called you to a heroic life. He's called you to a meaningful one. God has not called you to a heroic life. He's called you to a meaningful one. And we can rest in that reality this morning. So, how could we summarize it? Let's summarize it in this way. The teacher is inviting us to the life-giving reality of our impending death. Perhaps the greatest idol we can surrender to God is the self-obsessed mirage of our invincibility. The more aware I am that I am finite, the more liberated I am to seize every moment with gratitude. The more liberated I am to seize every moment with gratitude. That's what the teacher is trying to get us. So the wise understand that death is certain, but the wise also receive every moment as a divine gift. They receive every moment as a divine gift. And this is where the passage becomes beautiful. So in verse 7, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. So listen to this. This is interesting to me, that Solomon here doesn't go into the bucket list, right? Anybody have a bucket list in the room? Like a genuine one, maybe you've written it down or it's kind of in your head. Okay, you've got some? I, I don't have one because I'm lazy. But um, I also Googled, so I Googled bucket list because that's even lazier. And I looked at um, kind of the things that they recommend, right? And it's like learn a new language and uh, try an extreme sport and uh, try a new skill, all these different things. But like number one on all of them was travel the world, just generally, travel the world. Now, that takes a lot of money and a lot of time, right? And so, but that's not what Solomon's calling us to here. Solomon he instead find, uh, directs us to see the glory in the ordinary. Solomon says you, you live every day as if it's a bucket list. Your bucket list is sitting right in front of you. You don't need to go to Rome. He doesn't say, you know what you need to do? Before you die, you need to go to the beaches of Cyprus and try there's a little seafood bistro there. No, not at all. He says what you need to do is you need to go and eat your food with gladness. Right? Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Why? For it is now that God favors what you do. Think about that. The word there is ratzah. It means to, find, to accept. It's often used in, in sacrifices. When God accepts a sacrifice, it means to accept or to take pleasure in. 
So think, in light of the fact that that moment will come when my heart stops beating and that all I have right now is the present moment, then God has called you, is inviting you to delight in physical pleasure. That's, so there's three things. The first is pleasure. He's going to, de- to delight in physical pleasures that right now, whatever you have for lunch, whatever that's going to be, whether it's a, a, a juice drink because some of you are fasting or whether it's just a full-blown steak meal, whatever it is, God is saying, you know what I've called you to do? In this moment, all you have is that moment. I want you to savor every morsel of it. I want you to enjoy every drop as if it is your last, because that is what I favor. That's what I invite you to. I invite you to enjoy your life in the present tense. What a cool concept, unless we think that he's just getting us to, uh, into some kind of hedonic or kind of pleasure-pursuing life. Think about the ministry of Jesus, right? Jesus was known for his eating and drinking with sinners. He was known as one who was working his way toward Jerusalem, his death, yes, of course, but he always took time. What's the last thing he did with his disciples before he was crucified? Eat. Just eat a big old meal and enjoy every morsel of it. That's what God's calling us to do. A psychologist by the name of, uh, see if I can get this right, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. There it is. Name for your children. Write it down. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he's a Hungarian positive psychologist. That means he's concerned with finding out what is it that makes people happy. He did this thing entitled the, uh, what he called the experience sampling method, and that's where he gave a thousand people pagers like the old school pagers, and he asked them to keep a pen and pad with them, and he asked them that whenever I page you throughout the day, I want you to stop what you're doing, take out a pen and pad, and write whatever you're doing and how much you enjoy it. And what he found is this, this enabled him to kind of get at what makes what people really enjoy, not what they remember enjoying. And what he found was, on the average, you know when people were happiest? When they were eating. That's when we're happiest. It's when we're eating, and God is saying, I delight in you delighting in the good gifts that I give at your table. Take time and enjoy every bite together. So the first, and so physical pleasure, but notice what else he says. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. These, these are symbols of purity, symbols of joy, symbols of gladness, symbols of a life that is uh, meaningful and enjoyed. So physical pleasure, that includes food, that includes taking care of our bodies, that includes drink, that includes sex. Friends, God is inviting you today I'm not commanding. I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not in your relationship. But God is inviting. If you are in a marital relationship, to enjoy that thing. God has just given it to you to enjoy. How beautiful is that, that God delights in, takes pleasure in when we take pleasure in his gifts. Death is, all we have is the present moment, so enjoy these kinds of physical pleasures. So, first is pleasure. The second is relationships. Second is relationships. This is what he says. Verse 9, enjoy Life with your wife whom you love all the days of this futile, uh, meaningless, so uh, fleeting life that God has given you under the sun, all your uh, fleeting days. Why? For this is your lot, your chelek, which is a, a portion. This is what God has given you in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. I don't know what your, um, I don't know what your New Year's resolution list looks like if you have one. But I'm sure it's got a lot of church, I'm sure it's got a lot of uh, various, some spiritual things to it. I want to be more consistent in my devotions. I want to kind of defeat this habit. Maybe join a life group, join a serving team. That would be awesome for us if you want to do that. But whatever it is, maybe it's on this kind of list of your uh, New Year's resolutions. What if we added to that list, not just spend more time with my family, not just uh, do more things with my kids, but instead enjoy my family. 
There it is, that God is beckoning us to enjoy our spouse, to enjoy our children. He's, he's not just calling us to do a bunch of things for him and to go, 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 but he's insane. He's instead saying, the life that I have for you is one in which I just want you to enjoy your life, to live it as if it's a daily bucket list. So, as I said, we're preparing for a baby, and um, part of that is trying to figure out who in the world is going to keep our three-year-old while we do this whole thing on Saturday. And so we're trying to discern who's going to keep the baby. Um, and so we, that means that somebody inevitably, so who's going to keep Kennedy? Because that means somebody inevitably will miss the new birth. And so we're trying to figure out who that is. Well, Ashton is the natural candidate to watch Kennedy in our house. But the problem with Ashton is she's an excellent photographer. If it's up to me to take pictures of this whole thing, it's going to be like three blurry ones, and they're going to be worthless. I'm going to have to throw them away. But my sister's an excellent photographer, and so we're so torn about who's going to watch our child simply because we want somebody to be there to take pictures. And you know what I'm talking about, this anxiety of picture-taking that's overtaken our planet, that everything that we're at, we have to have this device out, watching the world through this thing, just because, not so that I can enjoy it, but so that other people know that I had this experience on social media. This is how we live in the world now, right? When we go on vacation, what's the most important thing? It's not whether we enjoy it, it's so that other people know that we're happy. Because we could be miserable the whole time. We could have fought every single day. But there's that one picture of us all smiling at the beach, right? This is amazing vacation, right? Which is all baloney. We all know it's not true. There was moments, you got sunburned. It was miserable. But there's not pictures of that. It's just pictures of you like laying out, oh, aren't you jealous? Not really, because I know what's really going on. Like you're lying right now on Facebook, right? But we have to live our lives through our cameras. You know what I'm talking about? That you're at any kind of moment that involves children, and this is every parent in the room, just make sure I get the, we're not even living, we're not even watching our kids, we're watching our phones watch our kids, so that later we can have the video that we will never watch again. Isn't that amazing, right? <laughs> so interesting that, and what's so cool about the human eye, too, is that like, I don't know if you knew this, but the eye, the human eye sees in HD. It's amazing. So your camera may take pictures in HD, but your eyes do that as well. So you don't need the camera to do it for you. So we're living our lives as if every moment needs to be recorded and because we're anxious. We've got to capture it, right? We don't have the discipline of knowing that it's just a gift in the present moment for us to enjoy. I want to show you a picture just to show you how much our world has changed. In 2005, when uh, Pope John Paul II had died, a big group of people gathered outside in St. Peter's Square. And there was, this is what it looked like. I don't know if you can tell. So you got one awesome Motorola razor there in the corner. Some of you still have that phone, and I... Praise God for you. But um, there's that phone right there in the corner, and everybody's just kind of there mourning his death. And then in 2013, things change a bit at the inauguration of Pope, uh, who's the current Pope? Um, Pope, what's his name? Francis, thank you. Yeah, but there it is. That's our world now. This is how we imagine the world. And so um, Linda Henkel, who's a psychologist, she did a study in, in which she discovered something what she calls the photo impairment effect. She wanted to know, are these cameras actually helping us live in the world? And so she, gave, uh, she took a group of people to a museum. She divided them in half. She gave half of them a camera. The other half had nothing. And they were instructed to go through the museum and look at various artifacts. The people without the cameras were supposed to stare at the artifact for 30 seconds and to then, after those 30 seconds, just you know, examine its plaque and all that kind of stuff and then move on to the next object. People with the camera were supposed to look at it for 20 seconds and then take a picture. And so after this was over, the next day they came in, and she uh, gave them a pop quiz on what they had experienced the previous day. And the people with the cameras did significantly worse than those without cameras, which implies that we're asking the camera to do the experiencing for us rather than 
actually living the life that God has intended us to live. There's a woman by the name of Lori Leibovich. She's an editor at Huffington Post. She wrote a great article two years ago um, called Mom's Digital Diet. And she told her kids, she's always on her phone because of her work, and she told them, look, we're going to Maine next week. They're going on vacation. She said, if you see me on my phone to do anything besides take pictures, then I want you to take it away from me. And her kids were thrilled. One, because they could punish their mom. And two, because it gave them a chance to be with their mom. And she said there was a couple moments where she failed, but she was, had to post some new picture on Instagram of how amazing their vacation was. But for the most part, she stuck to it. She said there was these moments of anxiety when she didn't have her phone. But she said quickly she learned that how meaningful and beautiful it was that she was experiencing life by digging her hands in the sand with her kids and by using her hands to turn the pages of a novel rather than to touch a screen. She said how beautiful that was, but most significant, you know what she said? She said, for the first time in I don't know how long, I was really seeing my kids. First time in I don't know how long, I was really seeing my kids. There was someone else who tweeted uh, recently that they were at a, 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 a playground, there were kids playing, and one dad was on his phone texting the entire time. You know what her comment was? This is not a dress rehearsal. As we raise our kids, as we spend time with our families, as we spend time with our friends, this is not a dress rehearsal. God is asking you to wake up. You know what my, I was, yesterday, I was preparing for this sermon. I had a book in my hand, and Kennedy goes, Daddy, I'm still reading it. Daddy, what, baby? Oh, what did you play? Okay, oh, just in one minute, let me look at this. Daddy. She goes, Daddy, put the book down and play with me. Put the book down and play with me. That's God's command to you today. Put the phone down and play in your life and play. Enjoy every moment of it. Put the computer down, put the work away, and enjoy it because it's not going to last. It is a gift to be received from our Heavenly Father. And He is simply asking you, look at all this goodness that is in the mundane that you miss every day. My glory is there. Find it. You don't have to stress about it. This moment's going to pass away. Live in the present tense. So, we find it in our pleasure. In our pleasure in our relationships, and lastly in our work, and then our special moment together. Uh, our work, notice what he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So he's not recommending that we just go party downtown Atlanta and just live it up, drugs, alcohol, woo! Like that is not, it's not spring break, baby. It's not it. It's just living, it's living a purposeful life. He says, go to work, do work, right? But notice what he says, find work. So he's, he's talking about a pleasure that comes from, that it comes from um, finding joy in our work rather than finding joy from our work. There's a difference. One attempts to find joy in the actual doing of the work, and the other attempts to find joy in the results that we get from it. More accolade, more prestige, more money, whatever that is. Sadly, most of us work for the latter. We work because it gets us a paycheck. As I've seen on the Facebook meme, uh, all these meaningful Facebook memes, but one of them actually is meaningful. We wait all week for Friday. We wait all year for summer. We wait all lifelong for happiness, right? Many of us are working just to get the paycheck, just to get the results. And what psychologists have found is that most of the time when we actually reach the goal, when we actually get that result, we're not nearly as happy as the, as the moments of the journey that led up to it. So what the, what the writer here is, is attempting to show us is that he is recommending that we find ways, whatever work that we are doing, that we find that gratitude to God that we can even be able-bodied enough or have the mind enough to work at a given task. What a blessing. And God is saying, find work in the middle of that. 
the same psychologist that discovered the thing about food, Cheek Sent Me High, he's the one that also talked about, he discovered that other people, there's another type of pleasure that he calls gratification that comes from, well, he calls being in the zone or flow. I want you to think for a moment in your life, think about those activities that you do in which you completely lose yourself. You completely lose track of time, you completely lose track of what's supposed to go on next, what's, what's going on before, and you are just engulfed in that activity. Maybe it's music or an instrument, maybe it's painting, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's playing a sport, maybe it's um, singing in a choir, who knows what it is. What is that activity in which, maybe it's spending time with your spouse or your children, in which you are just lost, and before you know it, you wake up, it's been three hours, you're like, what has happened? And you are fully alive in those moments. The teacher is recommending that you do more of that thing, whatever that is. What's the thing in your life that you've always wanted to do? Not something to have, but to do. Maybe learn German, or learn cooking classes, or learn to play the guitar, or get better at something. I don't know. What, what is it? What's that one thing? Now, why haven't you done it? What are you waiting on? Are you waiting on the Netflix series to run out? Are you going to get to the end of our lives and say, you know what, if I had just watched more Netflix, oh, then I would have been happy. <laughs> Right? Is it more television? Turn the TV off. What are you waiting on? We don't have a long time here. But guess what? The wise take that to heart. And they say, I, may have, I have Sunday, January the 18th, and I'm going to spend this day doing something meaningful and new with my hands. I'm going to turn off, well, I'm not going to turn off the NFC and AFC championship games. That's not going to happen. But after that's over, after that's over, TV's going, I'm going to do something meaningful. Maybe that, what is that? What are you waiting on? Time's going to run out. If you still have breath in your body and a dream in your heart, there is something to enjoy in this world. God's inviting you, beckoning you to enjoy that. So, that's, so the wise then understand that death is certain and they receive every moment as a gift. And then lastly, um, oh, we can, we can summarize it this way. I forgot the summary slide. Thanks, Chris. Let's summarize it this way. The teacher is commanding us to live our lives in the present tense enjoying the radiance of God's pleasure that bursts through the ordinary. How great is God's grace that he would invite us to find delight in every aspect of our existence should we have the wisdom to receive it. God is saying find happiness in every single moment because it's available to you. This life is fleeting. So the final thing, and then we'll have our cool moment together, is this, that the wise... Uh, and trust themselves to the hand of God. The wise, the very first verse, so I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Hear me, whatever anxieties you have about this world and about your future, even if that's death itself, you are given the privilege of knowing that you are right there in the palm of God's hand, and God's hand is trustworthy. So if you know that, you are liberated to live in the present tense today and to enjoy every mundane activity that you often overlook, because we know that it is a gift of God. So I want, to com- I want to conclude, before we eat our chocolate together, I want to conclude with this brief poem. It's by Irma Bombeck, who was a famous uh, newspaper columnist. This is a very famous poem that she had written after she had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Uh, this is what she writes. If I had my life to live over, if I had my life to live over, I would have talked less, and listen more. I would have invited friends over to dinner, even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have eaten the popcorn in the good living room and worried much less about the dirt when someone wanted to light a fire 
in the fireplace. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would never have insisted the car windows be rolled up on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. I would have burned the pink candle sculpted like a rose before it melted in storage. I would have sat on the lawn with my children and not worried about grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and more while watching life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband. I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for the day. I would never have bought anything just because it was practical, wouldn't show soil, or was guaranteed to last a lifetime. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy, I'd have cherished every moment and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was the only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. When my kids kissed me impetuously, I would never have said, later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love yous, more I'm sorries. But mostly, given another shot at life, I would seize every minute. Look at it and really see it. Live it and never give it back. Let's take a lesson from Solomon this morning. That all we have is this present tense and God is commanding you to enjoy your world. You don't have to go to Greece to do that. You can go home into your bed and enjoy as much as you would if you were across the world. Enjoy every moment. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to practice right now. We're going to practice. So when you enter the room, you should have received a piece of chocolate, did you? If you did not, raise your hand, we'll get you one. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Go ahead and open it. Do not eat it. Go ahead and open it. You can stop just so we don't get too kind of mushy-gushy together. So here we go. Let's enjoy this for a moment. That was helpful, though, for the poem. It's really awesome. So um, here's what we're going to do. Open it. Hold it in your hands. All right. Here's, here's, how, here's how this activity is going to work. I took this from another pastor, and um, it's quite beautiful the way he did it. Here's how, here's how it's going to work. First and foremost, the way that we do this together, the way that you enjoy something, is it is not about getting this piece of chocolate into your belly. It is not about consuming. What's so interesting is they compared the French and the American eating practices. French eat really fatty foods as well, but the French have this practice of savoring their meals, so they eat much smaller portions. Americans were just like, give me a plate the size of a satellite dish and let me shove it into my belly, right? So so we're going to learn a lesson from the French. This is not about getting the chocolate into your belly. This is about getting the chocolate into your heart, savoring it, right? Second thing is this. Uh, if you are, you're going to eat this piece of chocolate, here's what I want you to eat this piece of chocolate as if it is the last piece of chocolate that you will ever have in your entire life. After you watch out of this, you're never going to have another piece of chocolate. This is it. Whatever it is, Mr. Goodbar Hershey's, doesn't matter. Whatever it is, this is the last piece of chocolate you're ever going to have in your entire life. So, here's how we do this. Go ahead and put it in your mouth. Now, don't chew it, right? Just savor it. Notice how the taste begins to change. Notice how the texture changes in your mouth, how it melts there. And as you swallow it, don't don't swallow into your belly. Swallow into your heart, into the core part where Jesus is there, right where, where joy is at, where enjoyment is. Swallow it right down there into your soul and enjoy every moment of it, right? Because here's what here's the thing is that your only task in this moment as you eat chocolate is to enjoy it. How beautiful is that? The only thing you're supposed to do right now is to enjoy it. 
and to enjoy the, the gift that God has given you from His creation. And as we realize that God simply wants us to enjoy this little piece of chocolate from the world that He has made, we become extremely grateful. Grateful that we have been given a mouth that can taste these things, that we have been given the opportunity to even hold it in this moment together. Grateful that we have given such, we've been given such good food by our God. So in this moment, as we savor this little piece, as the last one we'll ever have, I commend you to do the same thing in every aspect of your existence. Savor it as if it is the last one. Because this thing doesn't last forever. We'll be with Jesus forever, yes. But this little life that we have doesn't last forever. And God is commending us to enjoy it. Let's pray together. God, we um, forgive us for thinking ourselves so heroic for thinking ourselves so invincible, so infinite, that we are called to lead these amazing lives as if we are the exception to the rule that hits every person in the room. Put us in our place today. Teach us to find meaning in the smallest things. Teach us to be wise like Solomon. And to find that life is not lived through the eye of a camera or through a cell phone. It's not lived as we pursue all of these accolades and paychecks but it's lived even here together. As we eat chocolate or as we go home and eat whatever we're going to eat, as we spend time with our families, as we do our work, may 2015 be the year that we finally woke up and realized that all we have is this moment together. And we thank you for this moment as the precious gift you have made it. And we give you praise for it. And we look forward to the day when we share in your infinite glory and not that of our own. In Jesus' name I pray.